From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. I've never, ever, ever tried anything that I couldn't do. And as soon as I could do it, I was bored. My problem was much more about finding the thing that would not bore me. The thing that would not bore me was making art. And I knew that. And I knew the reason why it was going to never bore me, because I was never going to be able to do it as well as I could write. Hi, I'm Lucas Werner. This season of Dialogues, we're inviting on new hosts for certain episodes, so we can expand not only the diversity of our guests, but also of the subjects we tackle on the podcast. This episode, the curator and writer Jarrett Ernest is on a subject he has always been deeply interested in, serious artists who are also serious writers. I'm Jared Ernest, your guest host for this episode. Today, I'm talking with legendary conceptual artist Lorraine O'Grady on the occasion of her retrospective, Both and, at the Brooklyn Museum, and on the release of her book, Writing in Space, which brings together essays and conversations from the last 40 years. This conversation picks up in the middle of our ongoing, years-long discussions of literature, philosophy, and history, dipping into our mutual love of filmmaker Maya Darren's book, Divine Horsemen, The Living Gods of Haiti, as well as the development of her autobiographical essay, Notes on Living a Translated Life, which was published in Hyperallergic late last year. O'Grady is unique for many reasons, not least for coming to art later in life, at the age of 40, after a successful career working for the Labor and State Department, running her own translation business, and becoming a critic. To contextualize this the this beginning of a conversation, which I'm having with artists who write or who engage with writing as a part of their work, you are kind of like the poster girl of this particular nexus. Oh, really? Because you came to art through writing, more or less, after having uh, done very well a number of other things, it was almost like only after having... Uh, been a translator, been a rock critic, been a, a, a gone to the Iowa Writers Workshop to study literature. That you then kind of ended up starting to make writing in the New York art world in the eighties. Now, after a life after a lifetime of translating, uh, not just literature, but translating my life to others so that they could understand me. And, uh, and also the kind of training that one has as an extreme minority uh, in culture uh, of having to translate almost every single thing one reads or hears into terms that refer to one and that one can use. The process of translation means that you understand that there are things you can use. You just, in the speech in the speech of others, you just simply have to be able to make them uh, meaningful to one's own purposes, whether those are life purposes or art purposes or whatever, right? You know. But my work has always been uh, about uh, uh, speaking and reading and writing across difference, and that, that one does not have to speak with uh, people who are exactly like oneself in order to understand them or in order to get something meaningful or important, either accomplished for oneself or for the culture as a whole. And um, uh, so, I mean, I was trained in 
in that process from the earliest of childhood. You know, I learned how to read by reading, um, you know, the the uh, Howard Pyle books on uh, you know King Arthur and his knights. Right. So uh, you can't. My whole life has been translation. So this uh, this is, uh, I would say, something that uh, has sort of solidified itself in a way in the position that I'm taking now, which is that the binaries uh, have to be modes of exchange. Well, I one of the things that's interesting to me about that, and I think is makes your work very complicated, um, in ways I've always, as you know, identified with and been interested in, is that the threshold of difference that you're talking about is not just between a person to a culture or between a person and a person, but it's even at the threshold of a self in terms of how can you speak to um, or communicate uh, some sense of understanding even within the the interior of like who who Lorraine is at this particular yeah, intersection. Well, uh, you know, I'm famously somebody who didn't get out from under their mother until they were 40. <laughs> you know, for the first 25 years of my life, I would say I was still living under uh, my mother's plan for me. But I was somebody who had a lot of different talents. And, <clears throat> and, um, you know, I was verbally skilled and so forth, but I was also um, artistically skilled in a way that she recognized. <clears throat> not from not from my uh, fourth grade novel, which she shut down like a ton of bricks, right? But um, uh, there came. In, I was about fourteen, I think, uh, when I decided that. Uh, the clothes that I was finding, there was there was an outfit that I wanted that I couldn't find anywhere, not even in Filene's basement, right? And I said, I want to make an I want to make a dress, a sheath dress with a short cape. So we went out and we found a pattern that actually was exactly what I wanted. And then we went to look for some fabric. Now I had never sewn a single thing. My mother, of course, is a professional was a professional dressmaker, so you know she had this she had all of the tools at home, uh, including a very fancy singer sewing machine. Um, and she said, "Well, listen, you can't just buy expensive fabric uh, because you you know to to test to try out on, you know, because you've never sewn anything before." And I said, "No, I want this fabric." So she gave in and she bought this fabric, which was very expensive, very beautiful. And she sat with me beside, beside me at the sewing machine and said, now do this and do that. And she said, she said to me about 20 years later, she said, you know, I watched you making this dress. And I said to myself, is this girl a genius or what? And then you never made another thing. <laughs> okay. Because... She didn't pick up on the fact that maybe she should start pushing me in that direction. She only picked up on the fact, Lorraine debates. She's a brilliant debater. She does this, she does that. She can be a lawyer. You understand? And so everything I was pushed to do until I was 25 
with to live out that dream. If well, if you can't be a lawyer, at least you can work for the government. You know, whatever, whatever. So, um, I actually had gone uh, on my senior interviews to uh, to some of the uh, fancier. Uh, uh, um, basically, uh, you know, department stores, some of them boutique department stores, but still department stores uh, for, for jobs. But I found that the conditions of women in those uh, uh, department stores in the back rooms off the floors were just horrible. You know, they could be buyers, but their, you know, their legs must have been being bitten alive by fleas, you know, from the carpets that never got properly cleaned, right? So it was just awful even at Bonwit Tellers. And, um, and so I came back saying, okay, I'm gonna take these, I'm gonna take these uh, exams for the government pretty seriously, right? You know, I got the right amount of sleep and everything and I aced them. And you know, like 20,000 people had sat for this one particular exam and only about 500 of them passed the written and then only 200 passed the oral. So I, so I said, well, okay, you know, maybe this is what I meant for. And, um, and it wasn't until I had sort of spent five years at the Department of Labor, basically, just not being able to be seen, not being able to express myself, not being able to, you know, be who I was, that I understood that this grayed out world was not for me. And so that was when I thought, that was the first stage of getting out from under my mother, right, you know, was like, Quitting the quitting the Department of Labor and going off to Europe, right, to be to write a novel. And then I came back and I started working for the Department of State. And she thought well, maybe there's hope, but you know, then I didn't pass the final. It was complicated. I didn't get the final Q clearance, and um, and so then I had to figure out what to do with myself. And I said, okay, now now is the time. So I plunged and I went to uh, the Iowa Writers Workshop. And uh, she wasn't happy at all. She was not happy with that. And I think that the reason that she wasn't happy was that by doing something like that, I was moving out of the, uh, out of the world and out of the frameworks that she could discuss. I started uh, remaking myself at 25. And, um, but always sort of with, a, an eye to maybe doing something that would make her feel that it was worth it. Well, what is so interesting to me about this story, and I've never heard you lay it out in particular in, in this way yeah. before, is when thinking about the question of translation, it brings it not only to translation within the family unit, you know, which which one would not um, necessarily imagine having to translate across, but of course there are those boundaries, yeah. and that that in and of itself was a way of addressing the question of translating parts of yourself to yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I actually, um, I actually uh, did something that I thought she might think was okay. I ca when I came to New York uh, with this guy who was in the Rock business. I wasn't with him. I was following him, you know, how that goes. <laughs> but anyway, it was the right time for me to get out of Chicago. Uh, 
And I, I must say that just in between that, uh, I had gone to Iowa, the Iowa Writers' Workshop at a moment when uh, the Cahiers du Cinema was the biggest thing in the world, you know, and um, and so Rogrier and and all of those people were, you know, big role models for my husband. I, I, I married a guy whose whole world was Rogrier and and uh, you know, his, all of his movies, and was trying to be a little mini Rogrier, and um, uh, and all of this was you know, French culture at its worst, <laughs> as far as I you know, <laughs> French, French culture at its most um, anal. And, um, and I, you know, I, I couldn't find myself in the things that everybody around me was getting very excited about. Um, so that made it sort of easy. So finally, I and my husband, we, we just kind of had a split there. And, um, and then I, uh, I had met this guy who was managing rock bands and sort of like found it was very easy to be around him. So I enjoyed that. And uh, <clears throat> then he got a job. Uh, his rock band didn't work out so well. And so he got a job at uh, at Columbia as the head of press relations. So I kind of like followed. It was about the time that my my translation business, I had a translation business in Chicago. Um, for, for Playboy, basically, and, and the Encyclopedia Britannica. And all both of those, uh, uh, Hugh Hefner was in the process of moving to California, and uh, and the Encyclopedia Britannica was finishing. You know, once the job is done, it's done. Right? So then you have to figure out, like, where's the next job's going to come from? And I didn't want to get into that process. So it seemed to me that if I was going to do something, now was the time. So this, so this friend that I met, and went to went to uh, New York. His going was sort of like the catalyst for my going, you know, but not necess not necessarily for him, but for myself, right? For the second phase of trying to become me, right? But instead of you know becoming me, I was sort of becoming him, and you know doing uh, you know rock criticism, right? You know, it's not something I would normally have done, right? But I was in that world, so I had to fit into that world, and. Lo and behold, I did something that was just absolutely weird. I I, I wrote about uh, the Allman Brothers, uh, whom I'd been listening to a lot before I had uh, left Chicago, and uh, and I wrote this piece. And their timing was such that the piece the piece was right for them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I didn't know their I didn't know their timing, right? But it turned out it was right for them, and. Um, and so, but I wasn't quite sure that they would take this, uh, this, all of the work I was doing for them was unsolicited. I mean, I just, the, the first thing that I landed on that poor, uh, Elaine Marks, I think her name was, uh, she was the cultural editor of the voice at the time. <laughs> first thing that landed unbidden on was this 3000 word piece on the Allman Brothers Band, right? And then I said, I said, well, you know, <laughs> there's not any guarantee that somebody's going to want to publish this. So let me find something else that they might want to publish. So I did a piece on Soul Train, uh, you know, uh, just a TV review. So Soul Train. And, um, and uh, I think it was about, I think it was about the, uh, the, the day that he, um, I think it might have been about the day that he tested out reggae and found it wanting, you know. <laughs> well, what's but, interesting, I said, that, was, that suddenly, 
landed me on the front cover of the Village Voice, the first thing I ever did. So I thought my mother would be proud. And she wasn't. She immediately switched the topic. At that point, I realized, I realized, I realized for the first time deeply, and I was almost 40, because I was born at 34, I realized deeply that nothing would ever please her. And so I would have to find who I was <laughs> and what would please me. And that started the whole process. Right. So the earliest piece in your book is the piece on the Almond Brothers, which is an extremely interesting piece, given the rest yeah. of the book. It's written in a very personal voice about you being going through a bad breakup and listening to the Almond Brothers so deeply. And even though you don't like white rock and roll, you love this yeah. music and kind of writing through the complexity of that. Yeah, and and why do I love this I mean, music so much? You know, it's like, I, I loved it. Um, uh, I, I didn't realize why I loved it, uh, perhaps even when I was writing it as much as I do now. Uh, um, that was a strange moment in American musical history. A very strange moment. Uh, it was a moment when uh, white man, a white band like the Allman Brothers Band could tap into the blues in a genuine way. It was the same moment when a gospel blues singer could tap into the white world. And that was Aretha Franklin. I mean, the Allman Brothers and Aretha Franklin's careers overlapped, and they overlapped at the same studio, uh, Fame in uh, and Muscle Shoals, right? And uh, Dwayne was had been working with the same band that uh, backed. I mean, most people don't seem to realize this that the that the uh, that the critical and most um, identifiable moment of Aretha uh, Franklin's career was done in a white studio with white musicians, okay? And it was just this extraordinary group of, uh, of young, young, very young uh, musicians uh, at Muscle Shoals who, uh, who just could be anything to anybody. Do you know what I'm saying? They were that good. And uh, and uh, they had no problems, of course. They, they themselves had been. Um, people don't realize how much uh, how complicated the South was. That, that that Southern white boys were as much raised on blues as you know black boys were. But but they but everybody was sort of like taking their own roots to it. So so the southern uh, so the southern white boys were more into country and and um, and well I don't know I guess you know good music is good music what can I say good music is good music wherever you find it and uh, and those who make it uh, don't really make the kind of distinctions that some of those who listen to it make uh, they you know. They're, they're moving in and out of quality as far as they're concerned. So they make whatever the best they, they can be. They're the best that they can be at whatever it is that they're doing at the moment. When you were studying um, writing at Iowa Writers Workshop, and you, you basically talk about it to the extent that you say that you had these problems with writing that you then I kind of identify as, as being related to narrative. 
And so what was it that in particular about your writing that never satisfied you that led you to move, but you felt that you could address properly in performance and in visual art? Well, you know, I mean, basically, uh, that's a question that I would not have known exactly how to answer at the time, although I can see how I ultimately answered it. Um, but um, I just knew that the work wasn't good. It was rather sophomoric in the sense of my skills, my skill level was sophomoric to what it was I was trying, thinking uh, and trying to accomplish. This idea of uh, wanting, wanting literature to have a beginning, middle, and end, but not necessarily in that order, and, and that the, uh, the recommended way of uh, starting was you know, in the middle of things. Um, but I, before I uh, tried to master those things, I somehow felt that that wasn't what I was looking for. I kind of sensed that that was not going to work for me, that that, um, and I don't know why I felt that way, and I don't, I couldn't have named it at the time, but I've since come to understand that what I really was looking for was a writing that uh, not only uh, didn't have the beginning, middle, and end in that order, but didn't have either a beginning or a, or an end or a middle. Now, I do know that it wasn't as radical as all that. <laughs> Even conceptual art was not as radical as all that. And that I've gone way beyond that <laughs> now, in, in my thinking anyway, whether or not I can do it, whether or not I'm going all beyond that in my actual achievement, that's a whole other story, but in my thinking. And um, uh, I, I, I did know that what I wanted to do, that the only, the only possible place for me to write the way I wanted to write was in space. That I, that I got out of reading Lucy, right? And so, so I began almost immediately thinking of myself as writing in space. This was well, almost, immediate, almost immediately, as soon as I started actually doing something, you know, there was a long period of preparation in order to do. So, so from 1974 to 1977, when I did, uh, when I did the, uh, cutting out the New York Times, I wasn't doing anything except reading, <laughs> you know, re reading and thinking, reading and thinking, reading and thinking. One thing that is kind of enigmatic to me when I realized it, because I, um, I know you as someone who reads very widely and very deeply, like all over, kind of voracious mind and reader, and then to realize that for most of your adult life, until you were 40, it seems as though you were not interested in visual art at all. And no, so I was, I was still, what, I was still almost, living in a yeah. world where, um, uh, and, and, and to a certain extent, uh, Jarrett, I still am, uh, where the, um, the visual arts don't have too much to say about real political solutions. They think they do sometimes. They, they you know, they pat themselves in the back, but nobody's, paying any attention to them because they're so irrelevant. I, I mean, I've been trained in the political sciences. You know, my degree is in economics. I didn't start thinking about my concerns as cultural, as philosophical until I was about 25. 
It was really funny. I think some people around me sort of saw it before I did, you know, it's always the way. I, mean, I didn't have a framework to put these things, but other people were seeing me in this way, you understand? That I didn't start to see myself until I was almost 40. And I was still thinking of, I was still thinking of politics and culture as, you know, two separate things. Well, given, given that, that you talked about the kind of powerlessness of the intellectual or political uh, ambition or effect of art or the, or the cultural sphere, it's like, what is it that you now feel is possible within that space? Well, uh, I I started with a very clear and and I haven't really changed. This is something I haven't changed. You know, a lot of things I keep changing, but this one I haven't changed. And that is that um, the, um, that the art world is a perfect microcosm of the real world. Okay. And not only is it a perfect microcosm, it's probably an extreme microcosm of the real world. It's more prejudiced, more, uh, more class stratified, more wealth stratified, more, uh, more self-satisfied than the rest of the world. But it, it, it worked to me, it looked to me always that I could, that there was nothing that I could say about the real world uh, that I could say that was so diverse and so forth that could not be better said about the art world, which at least offered a shape, a singular shape that could be addressed uh, with, with infinite ramifications for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the real world. Well, I would also say, I want to go back to something. I love the story of you watching Vito Acconci and saying, like, Nobody gave him permission to do this. He's doing it. And people accept that and saying, you know, I'm going to do that. I, I think that that's a kind of very deep recognition that all artists have to have, that like no one's going to give you the permission to start making your work the way you want to make it. But on the other hand, the reason why there are so few artists that achieve their uh, uh, their goals or their self, the, the realization of their best ideas is that, you know, it takes a lot to have that whatever it is that says, okay, I can do it and then mm-hmm. you know, and, and set out to do it. And people have all, often asked me where I got the confidence from. And, uh, and I don't know that I had confidence. I just had, I'd had enough success in the world. You know, to think that I've never tried anything that I couldn't do. I've never, ever, ever tried anything that I couldn't do. And as soon as I could do it, I was bored. So, you know, uh, my problem, my problem was much more about finding the thing that would not bore me. And the thing that would not bore me was making art. And I knew that. And I knew the reason why it was going to never bore me, because I was never going to be able to do it as well as I could write. I was so struck by, and I'm sure this has been pointed out, but I've never read it discussed, the story about you making the sheaf dress with the cape, (laughs) uh, the parallel with your first real performance art piece that was public of Mademoiselle Bourgeois Noir, you made a sheaf dress with a cape. Oh my God, that's so true. That's so true. I mean, there are a lot of things that happen unconsciously. And, um, and for instance, um, I think I was telling you that um, 
the Rivers First Draft, which is the most surrealist, futurist piece, both both surrealist and futurist. I, I did I did that piece in 1982, and um, I had started uh, my journal in So to kind of loop back to a question about writing, what you eventually arrived upon in your work was a structure that was the diptych structure, which you, through employing it, realized was an, an anti-binary yeah. tool where you could put things next to each other and they would be simultaneous rather than either or. Yeah. They would be both and. Um, and so so when you arrived at, at the the act of, of putting two things next to each other, which on one hand has the great virtue of seeming kind of um, effortless or faded, what when did you realize that it was starting to work against this binary distinction that you had been uh, sort of try that you had been trying to undermine? Well, uh, almost from the beginning, I understood something. You know, I mean, obviously, every year you do it, you get more and more understanding of what it is. Um, but um, the resistance, the opposition that I get, I get to it uh, in the beginning. I mean, the first major diptych that was out in the world and being discussed was the clearing. Okay, and uh, uh, and everybody, uh, there, there were two uh, primary responses that this must be the before and the after, yeah. And I said, to me, this is what every relationship consists of all the time, simultaneously the ecstasy and the exploitation, you know, they're simultaneous. But that was an argument that, you know, nobody seemed to get. And then um, the other one was, that's not what love is supposed to be. <laughs> that's not what sex is supposed to be, right? But, you know, but, but it is. <laughs> that's what it is, and it has been. But that's what it is. That's what yeah. it is, you understand? So it wasn't until I got the opposition to the diptych that I realized how much it was overturning in cap people's capacities to think. And that that was the, Did that was the biggest problem. I always felt that the biggest problem was the hierarchizing of cultures. That to me was always the biggest problem. Well, in our previous conversations, it struck me that our almost structural attraction to other things we share, like thinking of of the tale of Genji or thinking of Maya Darren's book on voodoo, is that those are both syncretic, highly syncretic. Syncretic, contexts. that's the word that I was using, syncretic, yeah. Yeah, one thing that I began to wonder about when I began to wonder about religion was why it was that the, that the uh, Greek gods, Greek and Roman gods and goddesses that we studied in school when I was a kid, uh, why they always seem so much more believable to me than than the God that I studied in church, you know? And that's because they were the, the that, that pantheism 
uh, really is more about the different parts of the human mind and the human psyche. And, and so the idea that there is a God in charge of this particular thing <laughs> and another God in charge of the totally opposite thing made more sense to me that there was one God in charge of everything. You understand? At the simplest level. Uh, so uh, I, I, I was myself drawn to pantheism from earlier, but I found in Darren this kind of um, way of responding. Not, not. Uh, I would say that Darren was uh, more of an appreciator than she was a, a believer. Do you know what I mean? She she was a believer, but she wasn't didn't wasn't limited by that belief. But she was definitely an appreciator of this form of believing. I'm coming a little bit more suspicious of. Um, people who look to the past for validation. Mm -hmm. You understand? And, uh, and or, or, or look to uh, auxiliary cultures for validation, you know. And I think that the, uh, the moment when, um, when uh, Vodun became big, in African American circles, was just this moment in about the 1950s or so, 30s, 30s, 40s, 50s, in that period, when uh, African Americans, educated African Americans, were were interested in finding validation outside of the culture that, of their culture for their culture. Do you understand? But um, the 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 dance forms and the whatnot forms of that were appropriated in a sense by Dunham and, and Pearl Primus and others for for uh, uh, for for contemporary African American culture. I think that was like that was like a, a source of both validation and expansion. Okay, but I have to say that. Uh, the actual black church certainly never thought so. Do you know what I mean? Didn't follow them there. This is a very intellectual activity, this recuperation of these other cultures, right? And well, how would you how would you relate to what Maya Darren's book does in that sense? Because she in her in and of herself is translating her own immigrant experience and ideals as an artist into her experience of of Haitian religion. Right. Well, and in a way, I think that if you want to talk about artists who write, that's the best artist who wrote. I mean, to me, it's the best book. Yeah, yeah I would say I would agree with you with that. <laughs> one of the best one of the best artworks and one of the best books. Um, mm -hmm. She uh, but um, she 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 is not looking for she is not looking for cultural validation. She's looking for personal recognition, you know? And that's what I feel I'm doing always. Finding themselves, finding oneself. Um, what, one of the things that struck me is in trying to deny the binary as a logic or as a structure in your work, that it places, your, it places you in a very interesting position in that it is it is always in motion 
And as you put together this book of collected writing and also your big retrospective simultaneously, it really is, there's a lot of weight because it is where you kind of tell, you present a certain story about what it is that you've done and your thought that may give the illusion of of a stability of a position. And so I wondered how you navigated that in in terms of- I don't know that, uh, I'll tell you something, um, uh, Jarrett. I'm finding this process so much more educational than anything that's happened to me in the last 10 years that like, you know, I'm still in the middle of it. I think that I've never had so much attention paid to me, uh, so many questions asked of me uh, that I didn't necessarily know the answers to and that I'm having to think through that it's really wonderful. It's a great occasion for learning about myself and the work that I had not, I mean, I knew I would learn something when I saw, I imagined that I would go into the, uh, to the exhibition and see everything together. And that I, that would be the educational moment for me. I hadn't realized that the educational moment was the questioning, you know, that, that, that was it, that would, that would be it. And, um, and that be, that's be, that began um, well even while I was uh, well while I was working with you on uh, in 2016, and out of that came that the, the first sort of well you know you've read you've read the piece in Hyperallergic so you know probably which parts I wrote for, for that seminar you did and which parts I wrote for, for the ta- task at hand which was the Garden Museum exhibition right. Um, so, so somehow or the other, that process of learning um, in a slightly different way, but still translating, but so, but learning somehow in a different way. That I really liked that piece that I did for for um, for the Gardner Museum. Oh, I love it. My only so the maybe you could for the purpose of this conversation, right at the time of the twenty sixteen election. I was teaching a free experimental art seminar and Lorraine came to my class and there were five people in the class and you had written a text for them to read and discuss. Um, we, and it was like the we met, I think, the Sunday after the 2016 election. Oh, was that what it And there was... Oh, okay, yeah. And so it was this very specific moment I remember of the five, the seven of us sitting in this warehouse with a view of the uh, Statue of Liberty, we're in Brooklyn, (laughs) and talking about this piece that you wrote. And for the purpose of this, would you describe what that, how that piece started, which is, I, I really loved, it was really deeply about your education, in a way, and then, and how it ended up in, uh, how it evolved as a piece of writing into the piece that you published for the Gardner Museum. Well, um, it was very simple. Uh, it was Boston, right? That was the piece was about Boston. It was about my, me as a child in Boston, and I had not ever written anything about me as a child in Boston before. So it was very autobiographical, but it was very, also very place and fa- family centered. So it it. It started at the simplest level of an explanation of myself that I hadn't previously given about who I was and how I came to be. Um, 
you know, I did certainly didn't finish the autobiography that that might have been the opening moment of. You know, I hadn't, I didn't get, go there. Uh, so it just sat in the, and you know, I had a lot of other things to do. <laughs> you know, so it sat in a drawer, and I didn't. And it wasn't until um, uh, somebody, some, uh, um, this young man, had encountered these images in a totally overlooked you know, draw uh, at the at the Gardner Museum and said, what can I do with these or what should I do with these? And um, and uh, and he contacted a young woman who teaches African-American art history at Wellesley, her name is Nikki Green. And he said, you know, what should I do with these? And uh, she, she said, I think you should talk to Lorraine <laughs> because she's she's the only one who comes from Boston, right? You know, and who kind of knows that, who, and she's old enough to know that history in that time period, or at least something of it, you know. And he contacted me, and for about a year we had these, you know, this incredible exchange of emails about you know this, that, and the other thing connected to Boston and you know Boston society and Black society and whatnot. And um, and so the first thing that happened was he, he he knew he knew that he wanted me to write for the catalog, but I had already said no because I didn't have time. And then he said, "Well, if you can't write for the catalog, you have to do something for the facade, right? You know, like." And so I did this, you know, I, I tr transformed Strange Taxi, which is about my mother and my aunts, and put it on the, the facade. And then I thought a little bit, you know, it could be kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, to maybe, maybe instead of just talking about his question, if I sort of like combine my questions with his questions, I might get something interesting, you know? And so that was when uh, that, that's how that piece started. It was kind of like, I had it for you for that moment, for the 2016 moment. And then I had to kind of like, find another way to make it more, I don't know, somehow still more, more personal, more about me. And that was about talking about my father who I never talked about. The last, one of the, I think probably the last question I want to ask you is a, is a structural question, which is that, um, which I had said before, like an exhibition is still a narrative form. Yeah. It's just not a linear yeah. form. And I'm wondering in the way that you are trying to break up the either or logic and also the kind of the forward narrative progression of history, how that's reflected in the way that the, that your book of collected writing was put together, which is non-chronological mm -hmm. and also the way that you're looking at staging the exhibition. Well, uh, I don't take full credit for the uh, organization of the book. Uh, and there were things that I disagreed with at the time, but like, you know, disagreements can tend to like become less and less interesting as time goes by. In some ways, I'm thinking of a new book as a way of correcting some of the things that I disagreed with in the in the first book, you know, things that I wasn't responsible for, somebody else was. Um, I love that. <laughs> well, uh, but, uh, but also, but you know, I could not have ever done that I couldn't have, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done the first bit of organizing of my own work. You know what I mean? It was just too big. It was just too big and too overwhelming for me to have done that. Had somebody else had to do it, you know. 
and uh, so, and I thought it was a pretty, it, it pretty good. It was pretty good, as it as it turned out. I mean, I could never have had an idea as smart as putting those two biographical statements as the introduction of me. You know, that, that was a great idea, and there was a lot of other you know, great ideas. You know, but there were just some things that I would have done differently. And uh, uh, and so you know, and then th there were some things that I would do now that didn't ha I had never done before. So it's a matter of not just correcting, but really adding, adding what I was becoming while I was while all of those pieces were being written. You know. It's such a beautiful portrait of the way that you work as a thinker and a writer that uh, your book has yet to come out and your show has yet to open and you're already making a new piece that's a response to yeah. it. <laughs> I'm making a new piece in response to the questions that I'm getting from you and from others, you know, it's really wonderful. It's really wonderful. I hope I can write as fast as I think I might be able to write, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the big question, right? I'm in the process right now of m moving, and the thing that I'm moving is my books. I've got half, I've got half of my, um, half, I've got like three quarters of my books are over in a storage space. And I'm going to be taking the ones that are, that I still want to relate to and learn from and bringing them back over here into my living space. We mentioned earlier your piece, uh, which is titled "Black Dreams," that's reproduced in your yeah, it's reproduced in your book. And I wanted to read a little section from it because in one of the dreams you talk about um, making an artwork, which I don't think you ever made, other than you wrote about it. So I guess that kind of makes it into a yeah. thing. But you talk about wanting to make a piece um, dedicated to Walter Benjamin, yeah. and. It said, mounted on three dry, it, the, you're describing what the piece would be. Mounted on three dry walls was to be a life-sized photo reproduction of my library alcove. The shelves contain about 3,000 volumes. In the center of the alcove, my actual desk, extremely cluttered, a typing table and chair, and scattered about on the floor, a jumble of packing crates with labels not yet filled in. Well, I actually built a lot of the uh, crates for that, you know, and the, the housing some of my books here, um, but I never did the piece. Um, I built the book just to see how it might work, because there was a certain point at which there were actually going to be crates on the floor, there were going to be crates on the wall, whatever. Um, but I do see my relationship to books as shifting around constantly. You know, not just individual books, but you know, individual uh, sub subsections of the library. You know, some I just say I'm not going back there anymore, and I'm, I'm I haven't gotten enough out of this. Or if I go back to this other one, I'll get something new. And I I also enjoy uh, going back to new work and and um, see. Everybody needs models, I think. Everybody needs models in order to keep moving, right? Unfortunately, I don't find the models that I need in the work that I see out there. I wish I did, <laughs> but I don't. I, the models that I see are in the work that I've done. 
So they're, they're my, the biggest influence on my work is my work. It's, that's a little narrow-minded possibly, but I, I don't see why finished, finished bodies of work can't be considered sketches for new bodies of work. Right. That's it. But I guess my question about the models, Lorraine, is that if you had encountered in your world, in some science fiction way, Mm -hmm. the work of of Lorraine O'Grady, it wouldn't have necessarily provided a model because you wouldn't have had to make that work because it would have existed. Yeah. And so I, I think that the way that models work, a quote unquote model for a younger artist or writer is very interesting because it's not like it's, it's not like you can do what it does because there's no need for that, but it almost shows you that something is possible and it provides a, it it creates a space in the world for you to think. Yeah. I wish that I had been more in time with my generation um, instead of after my generation. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, if I had been actually making work at the same, well, who's my age? Who's my age that I can think of? Oh, let's say most of the artists that were making work, artists, visual artists, right, that were making work that were my age were male. That's male and misogynist, okay? You know, but if I had been making art at the same time that Stanley Whitney and Frank Bowling and Jack Whitten and people like that had been making art, Sam Gilliam, you know, I would have been able to make my arguments more at that time. And so I... I didn't have anybody to show me how to go further because I was starting already having had the benefit of what they had done, but I was their equal. I wasn't looking up to them. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I was, they were not older than I was. They were the same age as I was. Now, there's one person that I wish that I read more, but I find that I can't even read some of some of her work anyway, and that's Toni Morrison. Now, she's, she was the same age, but she was really, um, I wish that I had had the confidence to see myself as an artist at that level so that I could have gone and introduced myself to her, but I would never have had that confidence. Why would she want to look at me, you know? But I've always been able to relate to her uh, essays all of her essays from the very beginning to now interest me. Let, let, let me just change the subject slightly, uh, Jared, because I want okay. to ask you a question. Um, I, I think, uh, I know you're talking about the linearity of the exhibition, and mm-hmm. I don't see my exhibition as being linear. It's not linear. Well, that, that's what I was asking you about. No, it's is, not, is, it's is, not, it's, it wasn't a linear body of work when I created it, and it's not a linear body of work on the wall. So um, it's a really spatialized exhibition, but I don't know, but still it has to be sequential, as you say, and, and whether or not mm-hmm. false sequences are being uh, set up uh, or not, I don't know. 
we tr I tried, they tried to disrupt that, you know? So things are not chronological. They are somehow gathered around themes that are kind of like, you know, it's more, it's more thematic, I think. So the themes sort of sit beside each other and don't necessarily relate to each other or don't necessarily um, inform each other. I don't know. But I, I was just wondering, I was just wondering about, I guess, I, did I write in space? <laughs> did, I, did, I, did I finally achieve what I've been hoping for? I don't know. Well, because the exhibition hasn't opened yet, we can't really go much farther there. Yeah. But that's really the question yeah. that... I have. You know, I think of your work so much as like a galaxy or like um you all of these parts that are spinning around each other in, you know, ever greater greater complexity and informing each other based on, you know, gravity, you know, gravitational fields. And that's one reason why I think at this stage in your life and career in which um many people, I mean you're 86, mm -hmm. closer to 90 than to um, 80, right? because <laughs> many many artists at that's at this moment in their life are are i wouldn't say slowing down but i wouldn't say that they're where you're at which is in a way you're as in, you seem as interested and as busy in 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 engaging the world that you've created than you know at any other point because it's almost like there's a kind of um critical mass of texts and images and gestures in the world that they start really complicating each other. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And yeah. so I want to say thank you so much for this conversation, Lorraine. It, it's always a real, you know, a real joy to get to talk with you. Well, thank you, Jarrett. And talking with you is always provocative and informing. This very, always stimulates me to new thinking, and I like that, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.